0: Hello and welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast. I'm your host Will Chernoff, and this episode is sponsored by 12th Street Sound, a recording studio in New Westminster, and my favorite place to record and mix my music. Anthony Cenerini at 12th Street Sound does album, EP, and single recording, mixing for your music filming of live session videos in studio, and full production services, where he can take a song idea from the very earliest stages all the way to completion. His services have great value, affordable prices, and his recordings always stand up to the best of the best, in my opinion. When I record with Anthony, I get the space to craft my story as an artist, and you can, too, when you work with him at 12th Street Sound. If you want to inquire with Anthony today about getting going on your music projects in 2022— Go to 12street.ca slash booking to tell Anthony about your next project. And before you hit the book now button, tell him that the RCP sent you. That's 12thst.ca slash booking. Tell Anthony that the RCP sent you. This episode is sponsored by Railtown Mastering, an audio mastering studio where Andrew Downton masters your music right here in Vancouver. Mastering is, of course, the final step when you're finishing the music that you've already tracked and mixed. And Andrew's my top recommendation to get that done on your projects. He's mastered a lot of my music. He's well-trusted in the Vancouver and the Canadian music scene. He's got a lot of clients on the go at any one time, but he never compromises on paying attention to your music with all the detail it deserves and getting it done for you in a very timely fashion with an excellent product. So if you wanna learn more about what Andrew does and whom he's worked with, you can visit his website at railtownmastering.com. And to contact him, email him directly Andrew at RailtownMastering.com. You can also find Railtown Mastering on all kinds of social media, including Instagram, to learn more about him and his studio. But to inquire with Andrew today, email Andrew at RailtownMastering.com or visit RailtownMastering.com to learn more today. Hey, it's me, Will, again here on the Rhythm Changes Podcast, the only weekly interview podcast about jazz and creative music in Canada without a guest. That's right, booking a podcast does not come without complications, and this week I was unable to find a guest after I experienced a cancellation in my original plans. This might be the only time that that ever happens, and I always welcome your feedback on the show. You can find my email on the website and contact me at any time with your thoughts about how much you've enjoyed the programming here. But because this might be the only time it's ever happened, I wanted to bring you something a little different. You see, a while ago, I tried to do a YouTube channel for Rhythm Changes on top of everything else we're doing, like the free weekly article, the Rhythm Changes update, this podcast, but I wasn't able to keep the YouTube channel going. I made four video essays on some different music industry and music career building related topics. I took the channel down because I can't commit to making content there in addition to all the other stuff we do at Rhythm Changes. It was a failed experiment. We've all got things like that, right? But I wanna make sure that you still have access to those four video essays. And that's why on this guest list episode, I'm presenting them all for you right here. So we're gonna kick things off with our first of the four video essays. This was from December, 2021. So a few months ago now at the Time Publishing, this was a tweet by somebody named Wendy McNaughton about the pressure and the stress that artists feel to constantly create content. That's a struggle that I've had and that many of you had. This is my video essay attempting to explain how I feel about what we're supposed to do about this problem. That's up next. This thread about modern digital art careers from Wendy McNaughton at Wendy Mac on Twitter caught my eye last week. Wendy writes, I'm not so sure artists or writers are meant to produce and distribute regular creative content two times a week to optimize audience growth and retention. This isn't how making good art works in my experience. It is how a media business works. I'm afraid we've conflated the two. Also, Value in art is largely determined by scarcity, so short-term gain might not be worth the long-term devaluation. I saw some friends share this thread, and I asked the Instagram followers of Rhythm Changes if they had heard of it. Many had, so I thought about it as best I could. I've incorporated some of my friends' ideas into what I think about Wendy's thread, so if you responded to my questions about it, thank you. First, I want to say what I believe Wendy means before I respond. That means if I've misunderstood her, you can tell me where I've aired and I can go back. What I think she means is that pressure exists on artists to create content. Indeed, that's what caused an outrage in music labor politics over comments by Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify, in 2020. The most cited thing that Eck said in his interview with Music Ally back in July 2020 is, you can't record music once every three to four years and think that's going to be enough. The artists today that are making it realize that it's about creating a continuous engagement with their fans. It is about putting the work in, about the storytelling around the album, and about keeping a continuous dialogue with your fans. Wendy's thread might as well be a direct response to X much-quoted comment. Pressure exists on artists to create often, and that pressure harms some natural creative process that they would otherwise have. The work of communicating with the audience interferes with the work that the artist must devote to their craft. That's what I believe Wendy says. And I think this is terribly wrong. In fact, it can destroy anyone's ability to conceive of a modern music career at all. The problem with Wendy's statement is that while she says about artists and media businesses, quote, I'm afraid we've conflated the two, she is the one who conflates the two things. And they don't overlap at all in reality. A firm and frequent content schedule is a bad prescription for an emerging artist, and we should all agree on that. Making creative content twice a week is not what emerging artists need to do. It's what established artists do once they have proven demand for that content. On top of that, making content on a regular schedule does not necessarily lead to audience growth and retention. That's putting the cart before the horse. If you're an artist and you don't have money coming in, you don't need to build a schedule around supplying something with no proven demand for it yet. No one is entitled to have their work reach a large audience. But Wendy assumes that an artist can grow from zero to 60 by acting as a media business, and that's incorrect. Look at me. I enjoy the media side of artistic careers. I find artistic satisfaction in the details of tracking unique visitors, watching them change, and planning accordingly for the future. And although I don't have a big audience at this time, I understand the difference between art and content. Content is communication, and art is art. The communication around you and your art does not devalue your art it doesn't even lead to quote short-term gain the skills you need for communicating with your audience are not the same skills that you need to use when you make your art and for the past century musicians have entered into business partnerships with other actors who have traded their communication skills for access to the musicians artistic skills. In this era of independent musicians and digital distribution, we don't need to do that as often as we used to for many good reasons. We have decoupled being a musician from the obligation of choosing music as a career. You can invest your personal time into music and get that music out to the world without the need to show up as a career musician looking for a partnership with labels and promoters. There are musicians all around the world who practice their craft without firm career ambitions. If Wendy wants to hear their art, she can do that. And the number of post-industry platforms that aim to service those alternative artists like Ampled or Resonate grows every year. You can have plenty of artistic fulfillment Without reaching much of an audience, it's at your own risk as an artist that you mix together the artistic ends with the communication means. So next up, we have the second of the four video essays. This one is my response to the Neil Young and Spotify controversy that really took over the headlines of the music business as we started this year of 2022. I have a perspective that fits into the middle of the different music labor political factions that talked about it at length in January and February. I think all the sides kind of won. You ready to explore it together? Let's go. Let's talk about how Neil Young's music has left Spotify. In this video, I'll tell you why the removal of Neil Young's music from Spotify was a brilliant PR move for all sides, and invite you to share your perspective in the comments. The website neilyoungarchives.com has a blog branded as a newspaper. It's called The Times Contrarian. Neil writes the blog himself, and one of its taglines is Be Great or Be Gone. Neil is a legendary musician who takes principled stances, like his love of high-quality audio and his composition of famous protest songs. He decides where he's going in his career, and people have been listening for decades. On Wednesday, January 26, 2022, Neil Young and the Warner Music group requested the removal of his catalog from Spotify. Neil decided that coexisting on Spotify with the Joe Rogan experience wasn't great and so he was gone. He announced it in The Times Contrarian on neilyoungarchives.com. Neil won the support of many people in the music industry, and if you're a long-time consumer of Rhythm Changes content, you might suspect that I looked for Peter Frampton's take. Link to my article about Peter Frampton royalties from 2020 for context in the description. When artists from Peter Frampton all the way down to myself and possibly you and other people in our community saw this story, they saw a fight between the artist and the man, between Neil Young and the combination of Spotify and the Joe Rogan experience, and they lined up behind the artist. If that sounds indeed like how you felt about this story, I would think that also you were unsurprised that Spotify would treat an artist this way. But I have to say, Neil is a winner in this fight just as much as a loser. NeilYoungArchives.com is a subscription platform, like Patreon, but even better, because Neil's team controls it completely. Neil gets money directly from people who subscribe on neilyoungarchives.com, and there are possibly tens of thousands of these people out there. Will that number go up as more people become aware of neilyoungarchives.com due to this story? Without a doubt, yes he will lose some revenue because he won't have spotify streams but he will only grow his personal base of direct customers and fans on neilyoungarchives.com make no mistake the conversation between neil young and warner music group about making this move would have focused on that so if i'm saying neil is a winner does that mean that spotify lost i don't care what their stock price might be today i would say that they also won spotify continues to be the central figure in our conversation about music's future whether you or i listen on spotify or hate the company and speaking of listening or hating the joe rogan experience for its part has a global audience it's a huge show but it takes a countercultural position most of the time and when the network of people supporting neil comes after the show its listeners strengthen their feeling that they are the underdogs despite how numerous they might be that's why on the other side of this fight you have seen the hashtag thank you spotify both Neil and Joe Rogan may yet leave this fight with more enthusiastic listeners and supporters. And unless people really do continue quitting Spotify, deleting their accounts and canceling their payments to the company en masse, in which case I will definitely follow up this video, Spotify does not lose either. Their place in the conversation about the music industry remains unassailable. All the big players win, from Neil Young to Joe Rogan to Spotify, even if it looks like they're fighting. It gets better. There are more players in this game, too. On Friday, January 28th, 2022, this message attributed to Neil ran on the Times Contrarian on neilyoungarchives.com. All of my fans who are looking for my music should use this link, amazonmusic.com slash Young. All new listeners to Amazon Music will automatically get four months free. Amazon has been leading the pack in bringing high-res audio to the masses, and it's a great place to enjoy my entire catalog at the highest quality available. Thanks, love Earth, be well, Neil. If you jumped into this fight because Neil represented the purest form of love of music, I imagine you're disappointed that he jumped immediately to a new corporation. Apple Music, for their part, tweeted that they are now the home of Neil Young. And so the other streaming platforms get a new ally in a legendary artist, helping them gain ground against Spotify in this corporate streaming race. Joe Rogan's audience reinforced the mindset that they are the underdogs and whether you love them or hate them, they're not going anywhere. Spotify continued to dominate the discourse and Neil Young did what he always does, take the wheel and steer his future as an artist. What did you see in this story and what did it mean to you? What I learned was this all the big players can win a PR battle at the same time if they just appear to mix it up a bit. So the third video essay is about Ted Joya and his claim in his substack that old music is killing new music. Enough said, let's get to it. This week I read something oddly familiar in an email. Bandcamp emailed my artist account, and here's what they said. Over 75% of music bought on Bandcamp was released in the past year. Nearly 70% of music streams on subscription services are of music that's older than 18 months. Do you get what they mean? On Spotify and the like, old music is killing new music, but on Bandcamp people want to hear new music. It's pretty obvious why Bandcamp would want to market this message to me, but in this video, I'll show you why old music killing new music is something to celebrate. And I can't wait to hear what you think about that in the comments. In January 2022, Ted Joya asked this very question on his substack, The Honest Broker. Is old music killing new music? The business has a word for old music catalog. It means recordings that released 18 months ago or more. And Joya's article shares the stat that in the US, almost 70% of all streams from the year 2021 were streams of catalog. That's the same stat that Bandcamp used in their email to me. So let's fill in that sentence from Bandcamp's email with the context of the past 18 months, 2021 and some of 2020. When we do that, we end up with this. Over 75% of music bought on Bandcamp was released in 2021 or 2020. Nearly 70% of music streams on subscription services are of music released in 2019 or before. When you put it this way, it's unsurprising. It's the furthest thing from the hot statement that old music is killing new music. Of course, three quarters of Bandcamp sales are from music released in 2021 or 2020. Right on their front page, Bandcamp currently has a live number, which states that about one quarter of the all-time sales on the platform have happened in the past year. Bandcamp was founded in 2008, so if we average out that all-time sales total across their first 12 years, we learn that as we got into the tumultuous last two years, Bandcamp's annual sales probably tripled. Hence the over 75% of music sales on Bandcamp being for new music triple the 25% that is of catalog. Let's turn now to the streaming of old music. We learned from Bandcamp and from Joya that 70% of streams in the US are of catalog. I'm not surprised by this either, because we have easier access to older music than ever before. Ted Joya is a boomer, not in a derogatory sense, he just is. And in the month of his article's publication, January 2022, I turned 27 years old. Right now, if I wanted to hear music from the mid-1980s, which is around when Joya would have been 27, my age, it's very easy for me to hear that catalog. But when Joya was 27, What would he have had to do if he wanted to listen to music from the equivalent, the 1940s? He would have to dig in crates, buy those records, and build up his collection. That's too much effort, unless you love jazz as much as he does. People don't need to expend that much effort anymore. We can stream almost any catalog we want. And I celebrate that ease of access, because we should all remember that even the music we release this year will be catalog in just a year or two new music has always been hard or expensive or both and the discovery challenge for new releases is a bigger topic than i could cover today but frankly i'm impressed that it's only 70 percent of streams in the u.s going to catalog 30 percent of people are out there listening to new music like what i make and rather than worry about old music killing new music i'm happy that we all have more access to what we want All right, now we've got the fourth of the four essays that will live here after not being able to be found on YouTube anymore. This one is the most local. It's probably the most relevant to you and the other BC-based listeners of this podcast. It is about the coastal jazz controversy that fortunately has been resolved quite a bit since I made this video. But here is my attempt to sort through all the news stories about the coastal jazz AGM controversy. The largest nonprofit music presenter in BC has entered its biggest controversy in 35 years of history, and I made a clueless mistake about it. You see, I've donated personally to the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society, the nonprofit that presents the Vancouver Jazz Festival. And as a donor, I had the right to attend the Coastal Jazz annual general meeting on November 16th. 2021 but i couldn't make it and little did i know i missed the genesis of a story that would go on to be covered in cbc news and the globe and mail over the next couple months if you've only followed this story on the side and you want to know more about it this video is for you it's got links to the source materials as well as established news coverage and you're welcome to put your opinions in the comments on february 4th 2022 Rainbow Roberts stepped down from working for Coastal after she'd worked there for 20 years and most recently had led artistic programming. And that week, Torsten Mueller, who is a Vancouver jazz musician, wrote an open letter to the Board of Coastal with the title The Current Crisis at Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. At the time of recording, 338 names appear on this open letter as signatures. The first main allegation of the letter is that the board put Rainbow's staff Position and other staff positions on working notice without really explaining why. Now, the Globe and Mail interviewed Franco Ferrari, who is a longtime board member of Coastal, and he elaborated on this. In 2020, the board ordered what's known as a 360 review of senior staff. After that, the board decided the distributed leadership structure wasn't working. In October 2020, the board put the three leaders and a director of administration on 14 months working notice, informing them their positions would be eliminated in December 2021. Now, Rainbow stepped down in February, so that December scheduling didn't really come through. And that's partially because the AGM went off the rails. According to the letter, the board members cussed out some of the members who had showed up to participate. When challenging questions were posed by members regarding the reasoning behind the decisions, they were met with derision and profanity from the board. On top of that, the letter alleges that someone had volunteered as an acting managing director for a year, blurring the lines between board and operational roles in the organization. This was taken a step further when the chair chose to write the staff report for the AGM, but later refused to present it after he had resigned mid-meeting. That's an opaque mixture of board work and paid staff work. The letter concludes with this demand. We ask that the board respect the decision of the voting membership by stepping down. The following week, Coastal published a response from the board of directors about what happened at this AGM, and it corroborates something that the open letter had suggested, but not too clearly, that the members at the AGM had tried to vote out the board of Coastal. However, according to the response statement from Coastal's board, there is no provision for voting out board members. If the number of candidates exceeds the number of open board positions, then an election should be held to determine which of the candidates are are elected to the board, otherwise the candidates are acclaimed. This was the legal assessment provided to the board by an independent counsel, which was confirmed and agreed to by the society's own legal team. The coastal bylaws are in the description in case you have specific non-profit knowledge and you want to chip in. Around this time, the social media activity of creative improvising local music people here started to heat up with criticism of the board. And in CBC News, Aram Bajakian and Sonja Mueller, who is Torsten Mueller the letter author's wife, appear as two main interview subjects advocating against the board. But John Orasek, who is a co-founder of Coastal, also shows up in this CBC article to represent a pro-board perspective, and he gets a little bit spicier. To be clear, he's not on the board anymore, but according to CBC, he said that in the days leading up to the AGM, many new members registered with the society, including Bajakian and Sonia Mueller. Orisic believes many of the new members were recruited to vote out the board over strained staffing issues within the organization. But another coastal founder, Robert Kerr, disagrees with John Orisic. He says to the board, according to the Globe and Mail article, I am deeply offended by your statement that you are, quote, carrying on the legacy and intent of our founders, end quote. None of you yourselves are founding members and not one of you speak for me. If you have a shred of respect for the values and intent of those of us who founded, established, and nurtured the organization to international acclaim, you should all resign immediately. And as we reach the present day, the last word on the story so far goes to New Dadun, who is a core board member and volunteer around the Coastal Jazz community and has been since day one. On the website and the wonderful time capsule that is VancouverJazz.com, New writes, There have been varying amounts of turmoil in the society for over a decade, and it's long past time for new blood and new perspectives to take the helm and face the challenges, of which there are many. I'll have more to say about that turmoil, where we are, and how we got here in the future, but I've proposed meetings with a group of members of the Vancouver music community about a transition of leadership, and I don't want to muddy the waters before we get started. That was an excerpt from New Dadoon's resignation letter, From the board. I don't know what to think of this story personally. If you're wondering what the heck is going on, I just heard all that stuff and I still don't know what's going on. I feel that way a little bit myself. And I don't want to muddy the waters either. But if I've taken anything away from the story so far, it's these two things. One, it's so cute how this story is taking place within the media where you have Aram and the Muellers talking back and forth with John Orsik and other founders chiming in through a traditional media apparatus. It's almost old-fashioned. Back in these people's days, people didn't make YouTube story time videos about each other and they didn't direct the narrative so much from their own social media accounts. They used the media and it's funny to see that happen again here. I almost wonder how much of this could have been sorted out if it really was people beefing straight to each other's Instagram accounts. Would that be better or worse? And second, more personally, how much of an outsider i am with respect to coastal more than you'd think considering that i'm a lifelong jazz musician and i'm a donor i have never worked with coastal i've never played at the vancouver jazz festival they have never offered me a performance at the festival i've never met rainbow robert or any of the coastal co-founders and if you're wondering why i haven't mentioned the late ken pickering in this video it's because i never met him there was a generation that grew up In Vancouver with this festival under his artistic leadership, but it was the one older than mine. So as always, my work here is not the finish line. It's a starting point for you to consider it and take whatever you can from it. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Rhythm Changes podcast. A little bit different, a bit of a change up, but I like that. I like that we did something special because this month is actually going to be the one year birth month of the podcast, which we started in May 2021. We've got a little bit more special content coming out around that. But in the meantime, I invite you to go to our website, rhythmchanges.ca and sign up for the free weekly article if you haven't done so. Thanks so much. See you next week.